Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of your son. I thank you, Father, as well for the church, your people gathered together to demonstrate to the world around us that you are alive, that you are powerful. I ask, Father God, that you would speak to us from your word today, that you would help us to be more like your son, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. Holy Spirit, perform your miraculous work of transformation within our hearts. Father, thank you that we can gather together today and encourage one another and build one another up. And I ask, Father God, as the children go downstairs, that they would be filled with the truth, that they would also know the truth about Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the amazing truth that you've given us in your word. You speak to us today, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Children, you are excused. This is the first Sunday of the month. It's also another first Sunday, and that is uh, the first Sunday in a new series. Zach and I began calling this the Acts of Peter, and we're going to probably add to that the Acts of Peter, a transformed man. What we're doing is we're going to take the life of Peter that is portrayed in the book of Acts. And the reason that that's important is because there is a a huge life that Peter gave to the church. And it's important for us to understand how his life impacted the church through his transformation. The two major characters in Scripture that we see in the New Testament in the age of the church are Peter and Paul, two men whose lives are dramatically transformed by Jesus Christ. To do this, what today is, it's a little bit different message because what I want to do is I want us to get a foundation of who this guy Peter is. So we have some background information about Peter that will help us understand the massive transformation that God did in this man's life. So we're going to start by going to what, you know, one of those things I like in life. It's one of my favorites. We're going to start by going fishing. Now, I'm a fly fisherman, and they didn't do a whole lot of that, but fishing was very important in that first century, especially around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, and 700 feet below sea level. That always messes with me because, you know, I've done several 14ers in Colorado, and, and I've lived at high elevations most of my life. 700 feet below sea level? Why would you want to do that? No. So this, this sea, it's, it's actually a lake, but we call it the Sea of Galilee. We're also told that there was a lot of fishing around Israel at this time. And they, the, the Bible and other sources 
talk about the fishing being done with hooks, spears, and a variety of nets. So there's a variety of different ways that they, they went about catching fish. The largest of those nets is seen in Scripture, and it's possible that the same net was 100 feet long. There were some sources that maybe a little longer, but and maybe a little shorter, but really 100 feet long, 20 feet high. Top of the net would have had cork or wood floats, and the bottom would have had rocks woven into the material so the net would hang. And then they would, they would pull that through the water, usually with their, their ships, their, their boats, not ships, and it would catch any fish in its path. Another very common net was, was round, and it was thrown by a fisherman, and they'd hurl that out, usually from the shore, and trap the fish that way, and then pull it to shore. The boats that were used by, by Peter and his brother in commercial fishing most likely were about seven feet wide and 25 feet long. And, and I found a real fascinating place on the internet that actually shows one that they have uh, dug up. It's, a anthropo- uh, anthropological. it's an archaeological <laughs> find, and they've reassembled it. It's fascinating. These ships, they believe, could carry a 1,000 pounds of fish or as many as 15 people. There is also evidence that these same fishermen at times would have used smaller boats. But most of the stories that we see in Scripture about Peter and the fishermen, um, for example, when Jesus is asleep in the stern, it's probably one of these, these boats, 7 feet wide, 25 feet long. Fishing was interesting. It's not quite like what we do here. Most of the fishing would have been done during the night. And the reason for that is that the fish seem to be more active at night. And it's important because it was calmer at night. The Sea of Galilee is known for these winds that would come down off of the hillsides. And you'd have these incredible windstorms and and it, it would be very dangerous. So it's, it was safer, it was easier to fish at night. What we also know about fishing at this time in history was it was strenuous, physically demanding work. You're up all night, and you're going through this whole process with the, the nets and, and all of what you had to do to catch fish. But your work didn't end in the morning. It wasn't like night shift, get off, come home, take a nap. The nets that they used were made out of linen. And because they're made out of linen, they had to be washed very carefully every day to remove any silt or debris. And they needed to be repaired almost constantly and dried very carefully. And the reason is that the linen would be torn by debris very easily. And if they're not dried properly, the linen would rot. And then your your nets would be worthless. So they spent a great deal of time during the day working on their nets. The other part of your day job was what do you do with all the fish you caught? Several sources talked about one of the things that they did with the fish. You've, You've caught all your fish. You've processed your fish. 
And one of the first things you did was you gave a bunch of it to the Romans. That was like a tax. You wanted to keep the Romans off your back at any cost. So they'd, they'd give a lot of fish to the Romans. Some of the fish that were processed were sold immediately in the local villages. So they went from the, the shore right to the market. There were some fish that they would process and they would salt. They would salt them so that as a preservative and they would carry those out into villages further away. There's also something else that I learned that I, I struggled with a little bit. But this was also something that I found out was pretty lucrative. And because of the business that Peter was involved with with his family, they probably did this. Now, I don't know, maybe you'd like this, but the really small fish that they couldn't process in the normal ways, along with the stuff they cleaned out of the others, they put into a vat and they'd let it ferment. Anybody say gross? Okay, so, so it's out there in the sun of the Middle East and they've got all this fish stuff in there. And they'd let it ferment. And they would strain the liquid off and they would sell it. It was called garum. It was a fish sauce and it was very, very popular throughout the Roman Empire. And you could make a lot of money selling garum. Nasty. <laughs> As these guys were fishing, there was, there was the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, even today, they're, they're amazed at how many different varieties of fish are in the Sea of Galilee. And I also found out that they've, they've curtailed a lot of fishing because the numbers of fish have dropped. But back in the first century, there were, there were large numbers of fish a variety of different species. But there were three main species of fish that were valuable to a commercial fisherman. The first one um, has the name St. Peter's fish. And it gets the name St. Peter's fish because this is the fish that it's believed when, when Jesus says, well, you know, they're talking about taxes. And he tells Peter, go, go catch a fish and you'll find a coin in that fish's mouth. Go pay your taxes with that. The most likely fish that that was was a tilapia. Tilapia are very prominent in the Sea of Galilee. So this was one of the fish. The other two that, that were substantial in this business were carp and catfish. Neither one interests me at all. The catfish is important to help us understand some of why fishermen were not liked in society catfish are not clean they don't have the proper scales and stuff so so they were an unclean fish they didn't meet the requirements of the law but when they were caught they were valuable to these fishermen the reason was that they could sell the catfish to the greeks the greeks didn't have a problem with them i don't they, i'm not a fan of eating catfish but yeah, okay. Give me a brook trout, right? I mean, come on. So they'd sell these to the Greek. But to do that, 
these fishermen, these Jewish fishermen were handling an unclean fish. So they technically were unclean themselves. That didn't go over big with the rest of society. So there's already a, you're a fisherman. Don't, don't, I don't want anything to do with you, especially if you're selling garum. There's at least, at least six of the disciples who were fishermen. These men were, were strong. They, they were physically strong. You'd have to be a really strong, physically capable man to do this hard work. And they were very often not liked in Jewish society. First of all, they weren't liked because they might be unclean. That's part of it. But they were also not liked because of the hours they kept. Are you work all night? Well, some of us, you know, that's hard. And in that society, that was always kind of... I think that also fed into the reason that they had for this brash personality that went along with being a fisherman. They were brash and their tendency was to use foul language. And I kind of relate that some to some of what we find in the oil field. Okay, you work all night, you use certain vocabulary that's maybe a little iffy. You put that along with Oh, and you fished all night and you sold how many pounds of catfish? You're unclean. So they were not liked in society. These were also usually guys who just, they're going to just tell it like it is. They're very brash. That's the picture of fishermen. Peter is one of these men. His given name was Simon. So Simon, Andrew, and their father had a successful business. You know, I want to help you understand that this, we, we sometimes get a picture that, that Peter and, and maybe the other fishermen are just like dirt poor and barely making it. There's a really good chance and there's a really good possibility based on some things that we learn from Scripture that these, these guys, Simon and Andrew, were really very good at their business. They I wouldn't say rich, but they're, they're successful. And the reason is that we have language that shows that they had boats of their own and they hired others to help them. So they were successful businessmen. They had a successful family business. Now, the story with Peter begins really through his brother Andrew. In, in John 1, 36 through 41, we hear of this, this story about Andrew hearing from John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That he's, so, so this would have been language to Andrew that says, this is the Messiah. So Andrew's all excited, and, and the first thing he goes is he runs to his brother. And he tells Simon. And simply before, because of that, they, they kind of sort of begin to follow what this, this rabbi, Jesus, is doing. So they, they know Jesus. Eventually, Jesus meets Simon. And one of the first things that Jesus does is change his name. 
Cephas, Peter. The name means rock. First, uh, John chapter 1, verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus changes his name. There's something important about that name. Jesus comes upon these two brothers and he invites them to follow him. Matthew 4, 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. This is really quite astonishing, but there's a part behind it that will help us understand because Peter and Andrew, they're part of a thriving family business. Why would they leave everything, family, business, everything, and follow Jesus? Why would you do that? What, what did they see in Jesus? What was the deal that they, they made this drastic change in their life direction? Something's up here. So here's some of the background that will help us understand why they would be willing to do that. Jesus, by this time, had become a well-known teacher. People were beginning to follow him. He was teaching people on a regular basis, and he was becoming very popular. He was a popular rabbi. This is also in Galilee. History teaches us that the Jews living around Galilee in that area of of Israel were some of the most religious Jews at the time. The people in Galilee were educated in religion, educated in scripture. These, these guys, they were fishermen, they probably had a really good understanding of scripture. That was part of the culture in Galilee. We know from other sources that children most likely would begin learning scripture in detailed ways around the age of five. So this is not just a bunch of people who don't really have a connection to their Judaism. It's big there. They're, they're religious. For many people, as they were growing, they would, they would learn a trade. And by their late teens, they would have that trade. So Peter and Andrew would have been learning the trade from their father. And by the time they're, they're in their early teens, they are already making decisions. And by their late teens, they have decided we're going to be a part of the family business. The best students, as they're being educated, would, would, would try to find ways of continuing their education. They would, didn't want to just stay at one level. And to do this, a student would seek permission to study with a popular rabbi. You'd want to find the most famous rabbi that you could and learn from that rabbi. That was an important part of the culture of growing up. Following a rabbi in this method included leaving home. You'd leave home and you'd travel with the rabbi. The reason has to do with why this is disciples. These students are called Talmudim. It's a Hebrew word for disciple. In understanding that term, disciple, the goal of 
a disciple was to be just like the rabbi that you were following. So if you worked out all the details and you became a disciple, your goal was to be just like him, just like the master. To follow a rabbi required some things up front. You had to have permission from the rabbi. If the rabbi didn't want you to follow, then you're not going to be a disciple. So you had to have permission from the rabbi, and you also had to have permission from your parents. What this also then means is that to be accepted as a disciple would be a great honor to the student and to the student's family. This was a big deal. What makes this interesting to me is that Peter and Andrew, they were highly honored by the fact that the rabbi came to them. They didn't seek him out like, would you make us a disciple? Jesus, the master, came to them and said, follow me. So this would be a huge honor in that culture. The rabbi has asked them to follow. And their father, Zebedee, would have been really pleased and really proud. Wow, my boys got asked by the master. This was a big deal in their culture. That helps us understand why they were willing to just throw down their nets. They already knew Jesus was a good teacher. He's a rabbi. He's, he's popular. But they don't know. They haven't filled in all the, the parts yet. Jesus didn't come to them and say, follow me. And they went, yeah, we know that you're the, the Messiah and that we're going to live with you and then we're going to die as martyrs for the church. That's not where they started. They just started with this, this honor of being asked by the master to be disciples. So they're following a well-known rabbi. As we go through the scriptures, the New Testament teaches us that Peter was a natural-born leader. In all of the listings, really, of the disciples, his name usually appears first. And that's because he became the spokesman. And after you study Peter for a little while, you kind of go the other level and might go, yeah, Peter's our leader, but we don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. <laughs> Who knows? But he was a leader. He was... He was a leader, and, and Jesus is going to use that. Peter is also part of the inner circle. He's in that inner circle with James and John. This meant that he was eyewitness very early of all these incredible things that were occurring in Jesus' ministry. One of them that amazes me is, uh, is found in Mark chapter 5. So the three, Peter, James, and John, get to see this happen. Mark 5, verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, that would be James, Peter, and John, and they went in where the child was. 
taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Here's this man's man, fisherman, and he's with Jesus, and they go to the the leader of the synagogue. So, so this, is, this is not normal for a fisherman to be in the presence of the ruler of a synagogue. And he gets to go in and he sees Jesus raise somebody up. Who Jesus said she was asleep. It's an, a euphemism for, for being dead. That's one way you could look at it. But everybody else thought she was dead. And Jesus speaks to her and raises, wow, what's that do to a poor fisherman's head? How about this one? Jesus was there. He was there when the fish and the bread were distributed to the 5,000 and the 4,000. Miraculously fed. So here's this fisherman who his, his entire life is about fishing and he has pulled fish in night after night and he has moved them and worked with them and processed fish and here he is reaching into the basket and the fish just keep coming wouldn't it be nice if that happened every night he's just watching fish multiplied and bread multiplied he's there he's got his hands on it that's a miracle of i mean that's incredible poor fisherman's mind He's also right there as he sees Jesus healing people of all sorts of diseases. He watches as the crowds following Jesus grow. And and they grow to these massive numbers. Nobody had seen anything like that. He's right there. Peter's personality shows us that he was bold, impetuous. He was willing to take risks. And he was willing to take risks that the other disciples weren't willing to take. And the best example of that is, is the, 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 the walking on the water. This is from Matthew 14. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I." Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I'm going to stop there because the way my head works, sorry. This is Peter, impetuous fisherman. How many times has he been out at sea when it turned bad? He knows how dangerous this is. He knows all about water. He knows all about ships and boats and all of that. He knows this stuff. If it's you, command me to come out of the water. So let me say it a different way that helps with what I think. You bet. Sure. Command me to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Yeah. There's a little... Yeah, sure. That's part of Peter's personality. Well, what happens? Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He's the only one. 
The other 11 are just standing there going, okay, it's Peter. And what does Peter do? He walks on the water. How amazing is that for a fisherman? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? This all forms something of the background for Peter. he's, He's thrown into these situations where he cannot miss the truth about who Jesus is. Peter's impetuous. And sometimes, very often, I think, he would speak without thinking. It doesn't ever affect any of us. I know that we all think very clearly before we speak. Sometimes Peter got it really wrong. Sometimes he said things and you just kind of go, what in the world was the guy thinking? Other times, one in particular, Peter got it right. I love this story. From Matthew 16. Beginning in verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, the impetuous Mouthpiece of the disciples, he replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Awesome. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is an incredibly important exchange. Peter gets it right. He gave the foundational answer of saving faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ means Messiah. Peter is declaring Jesus as the Messiah. This statement is crucial for salvation. And this is the statement upon which the church is built. Church isn't built on Peter. It's built on what Peter confessed. There's other things that we see about Peter that are important for us. One of the things that Peter missed was what Jesus came to do. His impulsive personality and his misunderstanding of the Messiah needing to come and die is seen in in how he reacts in the garden the night Jesus was betrayed. In the garden, John 18.3, Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's interesting. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, here we go. Here's our impetuous fisherman. Having a sword, he draws the sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, what are you doing? This is supposed to happen this way. There's a couple of interesting things here. Fishermen shouldn't probably carry swords. You you pull a sword in that situation with these other, these, these guys, you know, and all you can do is take an ear? He kind of missed his mark, maybe. So then you have this other thing going on. Peter just missing it. He's missing the point. Jesus came to die. He's cut the ear off. And Jesus' response to Peter's misdirected zeal is to heal Malchus. So Peter's standing there with a bloody sword. Malchus is going, what in the world? Luke twenty two fifty one. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Wouldn't you just love to have been there? Just, if nothing else, to watch the interaction, the nonverbals of Peter. Malchus is going, whoa, that's going to leave a mark. And Jesus, you know, did, he, did he reach down and pick the piece of ear up and stick it back on? Or did he just go, and there's a new ear? I, it, would it matter? Whoa. All the while, Peter's standing there going, what do I do? As the night proceeds, Jesus is arrested. And he's taken before the authorities. Peter doesn't completely run away. Peter's very conflicted. Peter follows at a distance. And just as Jesus had predicted, Peter denies he knows Jesus. Because Peter had made this big deal, you know, I'll go with you to death, I'll never... And Jesus goes, yeah, you're going to deny me tonight. You know, you just need to... Chill just a little here. So Peter is following at a distance. Luke twenty-two fifty-five. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. 
A little later, someone else saw him and said, you, you also are, are one of them. But Peter says, man, I am not. Now remember, Peter's been with Jesus, and Peter's been right there in a whole lot of miracles. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And there are some scholars who take some of the language and some of the form it's written here. And these interactions with Peter, Peter doesn't just, it's kind of cleaned up for us. He doesn't just kind of go, no, I don't know him. It's probably interlaced with some expletives. Woman, I don't know him. He's, he's strong. He's, he's this Galilean fisherman. Don't tell me I'm with him. And the rooster crows. And the man is broken. In his weakness, Peter has done the very thing he told his master he would never do. And he's done it. He's done it three times. What does Peter do? Well, again, he's so conflicted. Things are not going well. He, he's, he's watching from a distance. Jesus is crucified. And all seems lost. Until, until the first day. And we see Peter again. Peter runs to the tomb with John. He goes to the tomb and, and he finds the tomb empty. So, so Peter's a, a part of that first encounter that something has occurred. Even more conflicted. Where's the body? What has happened? Some of Peter's response is, I don't have any idea what's going on, so I'm going to go do what I know best. I'm going fishing. <laughs> Jesus raises from the dead. And one of the things he does is he goes to Galilee. And I believe there's a real purpose here. Jesus went to Galilee to find Peter. There's other things involved. But this is highly important for what Jesus is beginning. He finds Peter, and Peter's been fishing all night. Remember, this is a pro. This is a professional. He's been fishing all night, but he caught nothing. How discouraging is that? I went fishing with Scott this year. And I loved that day, brother. It was so fun. But I've been thinking all morning, you're the pro. And you're out there going, this has never happened to me before. We, haven't we did not see a single fish all day long. And I'm going, this guy is the pro here. What does that feel like? It happens, but it's like, whoa. This. So Peter's out there. He's all day long. He's working his, his trade, and nothing happens. So from the shore, Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. What? How would uh, You're the rabbi. I'm the fisherman. 
Okay. So you cast the, the nets on the right side of the boat. They catch so many fish that the linen net is starting to come apart. They have this huge catch of fish. Peter's undone. He's just, he, he's crazy. As the story unfolds, Jesus invites Peter to breakfast. Peter comes to shore and Jesus has got some fish cooking over the fire. They have breakfast together. And they have an incredible conversation. John 21, beginning of verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is, this is where the transformation really begins. Jesus carefully and with great love restores Peter. He restores this relationship. He restores Peter's confidence. He changes Peter. And in doing so, he commissioned Peter to lead the church. Peter becomes this incredible Voice of the gospel. The first Christian sermon. Who preached the first sermon? Peter. And thousands came to Christ. Began there on the beach. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Overcoming fear. That's one of the things that we can see in the life of Peter. Because Peter's life, there were so many things that he didn't understand. And, and there's this idea of fear. It's one of the many things that we can learn from Peter. How do you overcome the unknown, the fears? Another one would be keeping our eyes on Jesus. Like out there on the water. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. And not the storm. We learn from Peter that Jesus is merciful. Forgiving us even when we are unfaithful and make mistakes. We do that. Don't we? We make mistakes. And, and, and Jesus just goes, I, I love you. We learn from Peter's life that God is incredibly patient. He's so patient with us. We also learn that God teaches us 
when we are so hard-headed and stubborn. Or none of you are like that. That's me. I'm, clarify that. Peter was so hard-headed. And God taught him so much and loved him so much and cared about him. And, and it just, it helps us. Through Peter, we learn that God sees us as he intends us to be. He's looking at you and I and he's going, this is what I have for you. This is the plan and purpose I have for you. And in that, he continues to work in and through each one of us. It never ends. He's so faithful. He's so consistent. So loving. Peter's life also shows us that God uses ordinary people. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't an elite. He was just a fisherman. God has unlikely heroes. And God loves to transform us. Every one of us is in the process of transformation. In our series, we will see how God used an unschooled, ordinary Galilean fisherman to start the church. His life is pretty incredible. And we're going to see this, this life of a fisherman transform into this powerful leader of the church. Peter is going to be used by God to start the church age. How amazing is that? And God has the same idea for each one of us. Transforming us and using us in the church. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you for those that you have called that have gone before us. I ask, Father God, that you would help us to see and answer your call. Holy Spirit, stir up in us a desire for your word. Stir us up in a way that we want to serve the body of Christ. Holy Spirit, do your work of transformation that we would be like our master. Thank you, Jesus, that you've called us to come be with you. Father, see us as desiring to be just like your son. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for the church. Transform us that the church would be mighty and strong in these days that we live in. In Christ's name, amen.